Very well, I'll begin with our patron, our patroness of these conferences, which is, um, who is St. Philomena. And um, this time I'd like to study some of the recognition that different popes have given to St. Philomena. Starting with Leo XII, in the 19th century, in the year 1826, he gave permission for altars to be dedicated to St. Philomena. She wasn't even canonized yet, and you could have an altar built in her honor in your church, which is kind of an unusual thing. I remember back in the 90s, more or less, in one of our chapels in Texas, uh, the prior had put a nice image of the archbishop in the church. And it wasn't even at the front of the church. It was at the entrance of the church, and on the back wall. And it was a photograph, but made to look like a painting. And we had a visit from the, um, one of the council members of the society. He wasn't the superior general anymore, but he was one of the council members. He visited us on the part of the superior general, and he said, we all love the archbishop. Uh, that's good that we give him veneration, but since he's not canonized, you're not allowed to have him in the church yet as a painting or a statue. So we had to take him out, and we put Christ the King there. Um, you might remember that principle. Uh, but curiously enough, St. Philomena was already having altars in churches before she was canonized. In 1826, that was when that was allowed. Later on, Pope Gregory XVI came along, and we studied that story last week with um, Pauline Jericote, who had heart disease. She saw the Pope on her way down to Muniano on a deathly pilgrimage. And he said, say a prayer to me to, to the um, saintly remains of uh, Philomena. And she said, well, sure, I'll do that. And if I return here, would you please work on her canonization? And he said, I certainly will. That will be a first-class miracle, which he never expected to happen, and it did. And so Pope Gregory XVI canonized her in 1837. Pope Pius IX, he had an interesting pontificate, as you know. It's the longest pontificate so far in history. And um, uh, the enemies of the church were very active during his time, as they always are. But the way they were particularly active at his time was to get him, I should say, was to take away the papal states from the church. Those were areas of what we call Italy nowadays uh, that really belonged to the church to show that Christ does not only have power in heaven, he also has power here on earth. And those papal states were rested, W-R-E-S-T, were taken violently, violently from the Pope. And he himself had a threat upon his life, and so he fled the Vatican. He had many places he could have gone. He was the Pope. And where did he go? He went to Mugnano of Italy to visit St. Philomena to pray to her about the crisis, to pray for safety for himself. And eventually he returned to Rome. Later on in life, he made a gift of his pontifical, uh, sorry, his pectoral cross to um, St. Philomena and it stays in her shrine to this day. 
Pope Pius IX made St. Philomena the, the patroness of the children of Mary. Pope Leo XIII came along. By that time, St. John Vianney had lived, and uh, St. John Vianney advocated this uh, devotion to St. Philomena, which is the cord, a cord that one can wear around the waist. Uh, that's the St. Philomena cord. There are many uh, different saints with that. Saint, there's a St. Joseph cord. There are, there are other ones. But this one was St. Philomena's cord, which is uh, two colors, red and white, and it's braided and has two knots at the end. The white stands for purity, and the red stands for um, martyrdom. And by wearing this cord, one is, um, there's a prayer to say each day for wearing it. And um, one is given a special connection to St. Philomena for her intercession. And Saint Leo, or Saint, Pope Leo XIII attached a plenary indulgence to wearing that cord for the person wearing it on the day of their death. You know, we hear a lot about plenary indulgences. Uh, next week, for instance, on the 2nd of November, we can get a plenary indulgence for praying for the faithful departed. All things being equal, that plenary indulgence is not going to be for you. It's going to be for another, uh, some soul in purgatory. And you can gain one each day from the 2nd until the uh, 10th, uh, maybe it's the 2nd until the 9th of November by praying in a cemetery for um, the faithful departed. On the 2nd of November, that very day in the church is enough to get the plenary indulgence. But 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, and throughout the octave, you have to actually visit a cemetery, which is kind of difficult here, I'm finding, in this country. Uh, because uh, when there's a big country with a lot of land, you visit the deceased in the churchyard. That's the word the British put on it. And we all, all understood the word churchyard to mean cemetery which meant right in the backyard of the church is the cemetery. Here, here not so easy. But the point is, um, you'll be getting those plenary indulgence for other faithful departed. So how do you get a plenary indulgence for yourself that's going to work for you? Because, you know, before we die, it's usually, those days are usually accompanied by uh, not being lucid, not being conscious, conscious, all kinds of things like that. So how do you get a plenary indulgence for yourself? And that, that is answered. Uh, those who use the cord of St. Philomena and say the prayer every day will get the plenary indulgence for themselves on the day of their death. Whether they're able to keep up that prayer or not uh, during their unconscious days. And then um, Pope Pius X, Pope St. Pius X, he beatified St. John Vianney, or the Curie of Ars, and that goes a long way towards increasing the cultus of St. Philomena because he was the uh, most well-known uh, promoter of the devo devotion to St. Philomena. So by Pope Pius X beatifying St. John Vianney, uh, that made San Philomena much more known. And Pope Pius X advocated wear, wearing the cord also. Let me just go, since I mentioned the cord of St. Philomena, I'll just go through the other um, devotions and devotionals that are well known about her. Uh, 
besides when those uh, the people who wear, wear the cord, besides winning the plenary indulgence at the end of their life, they will also win or earn the plenary indulgence on the feasts of St. Philomena. So the 11th of August is her day of her birthday in heaven. The 25th of May is the discovery of her relics. And the Sunday after the Feast of the Ascension is the solemnization or solemnity of her feast. So on those three days, you can get a plenary indulgence. There is also oil, which comes from St. Philomena, not from her body exactly. There are saints whose bodies ooze a kind of oil, but not with St. Philomena. This is oil, in her case, it's oil acquired from a lamp, the oil lamp like we have here in the sanctuary, which burns near her tomb. So um, uh, for generations now, people have taken that oil and that's been able, they've been able to distribute that oil to people around the world uh, in quite a, uh, an efficient way. I, I imagine they can take, I imagine the, um, the sanctuary lamp is quite big near her tomb to begin with. So they can take a pretty sizable amount out of that. And then they follow the rule like we do with holy water. Perhaps you know about this. I'll talk about holy water now. If you have holy water in your house, let's say you have a gallon of holy water in your house, and uh, you want to make it multiply, or you don't want it to run away or run out, um, you can refill that with regular water, and that will multiply the holy water. As long as you refill it before the holy water gets down to the halfway mark in the vessel. You see? So you can fill, you can fill it up to the top again. And you do the same thing again when it reaches just before half, and you just keep multiplying your holy water that way. So if you think about it, uh, to distribute this oil of St. Philomena, they use the same process. They start with the original oil from the sanctuary of St. Philomena. They distribute it in, I don't know, bottles. I don't know how big they are. And someone is able to pour out just about enough that is less than half and fill it up with regular oil and fill another bottle with that, fill the main bottle, fill another bottle with that, etc. So it is originally oil from the tomb of St. Philomena. It's, it's valid to call that St. Philomena, Philomena oil. And that is a um, sacramental. Uh, that's one of the things I'm going to talk about in the discussion on the Mass, is what is a sacramental. We know what a sacrament is. Uh, there are seven sacraments, and they are instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ. There are seven of them. They, there cannot be only six, and there cannot be eight or more. There are only seven sacraments of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, the church has to guard and protect those. And they will gr give grace immediately and directly from our Lord Jesus Christ as long as someone does not place an obstacle. You will always get the forgiveness of your sins and confession as long as you do not place the obstacle of not being sorry for your sins. You will always receive the grace of forgiveness of your sins in confession as long as you do not hide a grave sin. These sacraments work of themselves. They say our Lord Jesus Christ works directly through the sacraments to give grace to a soul. As long as you do not place something against the purpose of those sacraments, you will always receive grace. Now, a sacramental, T-A-L at the end, is 
an outward sign as well, just like as a sacrament, but it's instituted by the church to give grace. And the church has the right and the duty to institute sacramentals. How so? Because our Lord said on one occasion to St. Peter by himself, and then on another occasion to all the rest of the apostles together with St. Peter, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. He means, our Lord means, whatever rules you make for the sanctification of souls in this world will be recognized in heaven. Whatever rules you decide to change or dispense from in this world will be dispensed from in heaven regarding the sanctification of souls. So a sacramental is a sign that the church has promoted, invented, promoted to give grace. So when I make the sign of the cross that came from the church, that's a sacramental that gives me grace. As long as I do it with some attention and as long as I do it with reverence towards God. But if I make a sign of the cross only um, as sort of routinely and habitually without really thinking of what, I, what I'm doing, and even worse, um, not using it as reverence to our Lord Jesus Christ because it's just a, just a habit, well, then that's not going to bring me grace, you see? So the sacramental does not give grace directly from our Lord Jesus Christ. It gives grace from our Lord Jesus Christ through the church to the person receiving it as long as he has the right dispositions and sentiments to receive the, sac to receive the grace. That's what a sacramental is. Sacramental. So this oil of St. Philomena is a sacramental. One can use it. Uh, it's most commonly used somewhere on the body. Uh, there was a woman who was anointing her child with this oil of St. Uh, Philomena because this child was having night terrors. So in the middle of the night, the child would be having a bad dream or whatever it, whatever it is very frightened, and um, the mother didn't know what to do. So her local parish priest said, well, here's some St. Philomena oil. Anoint your child before she goes to bed. So the woman uh, put oil of St. Philomena on the forehead of this child in the shape of a cross, and there's a prayer that you can say to accompany that kind of anointing, and the child stopped having night terrors. The mother forgot one night to put it on the child, and the child had night terrors again. And so uh, this is a sacramental. Um, again, we're gonna, hopefully we're going to talk about it when we talk about the Mass, but sacramentals, as well as sacraments, they receive their power from the Holy Mass, from the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Originally, or let's say in their, their origin, they receive their power from our Lord's death on the cross because that's where all the merits and the fruits of redemption are won for us. But remember, we have to think like a Catholic, not like a Protestant. All those merits and all those fruits of the redemption of our Lord's sacrifice on Calvary remain locked in that point of history unless there is the Mass to make those fruits and those merits present to us. And that Mass is, made, is done, offered every day. So from the cross, 
through the Mass, every sacrament, from baptism to Holy Eucharist to extreme unction, receives its power to um, effect what it signifies. Every, well, simply receives its power from the Mass. And the same thing with the sacramentals. St. Philomena oil, uh, the blessing of a field by a priest, the blessing of animals, uh, reading Holy Scripture, uh, praying the Holy Rosary. These are all the sacramentals. And they will sanctify a soul if the person have the, has the right disposition. But even that gets its power from the cross through the Mass to the soul. If we were to take away the Holy Mass, the merits, all the earnings of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross would stay um, locked in history, you know, locked in history. That brings us back to Saint, well, to Padre Pio's famous line that the world would be better off without the sun than without the Mass. Uh, we cannot imagine any kind of life happening on, happening on this planet without the sun. It would be worse without the Mass. There would be no grace coming to souls, no supernatural life. So that's the oil of St. Philomena. And then there is the chaplet uh, of St. Philomena. And this is from St. John Vianney. Uh, the chaplet is, um, again, there are many chaplets. It's a type of um, abbreviated rosary. In the case of uh, St. Philomena, it has 13 beads on it, and that's it. Uh, there's a, a, a centerpiece medal. There are three larger beads, and then a crucifix. On the crucifix, you pray for the grace of faith. On the three larger beads, you pray in thanksgiving to each person of the Blessed Trinity for the uh, graces bestowed upon St. Philomena and for the favors received from her. And then on the 13 beads, some people say Hail Mary's there, but actually it's more proper to say a prayer to St. Philomena, uh, which is a little bit shorter than a Hail Mary. And I can't think of it right now because I'm speaking aloud. You know how there's some things you memorize only when you're sort of whispering? And then you go to speak out loud and it doesn't come out anymore? And sometimes the reverse. You learn how to say while you're speaking out loud, and then you go to whisper and it doesn't come out anymore. <laughs> it's some sort of, sort of strange connection between our brains and our senses uh, that makes it, that happen. So uh, there are 13 beads on that in honor of each year of her life. As you recall, she, di she died. She was martyred when she was a 13-year-old. And then there's a novena. One can pray to St. Saint Philomena. Emphasizing especially the words, through thy merits, the tortures, and death thou didst endure. I ask for such and such a grace. You know, I'm not asking for free. I'm asking based on everything you suffered. And then our saint is particularly known and particularly strong in the virtue of purity and chastity. Well, that's obvious. That was her whole um, campaign there with uh, Diocletian. And I keep coming back to this story because I'm starting to see more and more that her death is a pivotal point in Christian history and also a pivotal point in Roman history uh, with the, the Caesars 
and the emperors and so forth fading out and being replaced by Roman history, which is the Catholic Church. You know, the barbarians took over the Roman Empire. Uh, I think the official date they given given that is about the year 360. Not that long after Diocletian and even less long after Constantine. Uh, and the only ones that were courageous enough to stick around in the Roman Empire after all that destruction happened were the Christians. They were used to hiding and being persecuted and so forth. And everything that used to belong to the emperors suddenly was taken over by the Christians. You know, Sumus Pontifex, the great bridge builder. That was the title of the emperors. It became the title of the Pope, Sumus Pontifex. And... Um, all that order of the Roman Empire became the order of the Christian Empire. And so I see uh, St. Philomena as this pivotal character to uh, endure the wickedness of the parts of the Roman Empire that were wicked and then to Christianize it. Even though no one knew of her for 1,500 years after her death, uh, her death is significant for humiliating what was wicked about the Roman Empire and then bringing in the humility and simplicity of our Lord Jesus Christ in the converted Roman Empire, which was the Christian Empire or Christendom. Very good. We continue with the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Um, our big emphasis last week was the purpose of the Mass, which is called propitiation, to beg pardon for sins. The two of the purposes which were directed towards God are adoration and thanksgiving. The two of the purposes which are directed towards man are the propitiation and the begging the grace that we need for sanctification, which is petition, impetration, nice long Latin words. Um, Propitiation is not a favorite word for modern Catholics. Just sort of do the um, logical work and work backwards. Propitiation. Why do we need propitiation? Oh, to beg pardon for my sins. I see. Well, I can do that by myself. I can beg pardon. No, you can't. You need someone outside of yourself who's greater than you, um, a stronger than you, more meritorious than you, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ, because only he can pay the infinite debt for your infinite sins. Ooh, that's kind of scary. What do you mean infinite sins? I don't have any infinite sins. Well, I don't want to be judgmental, but a lot of people do have mortal sins, and those are infinite. We were born with original sin, and that was infinite. And even when we talk about venial sin, uh, it doesn't sound that big, you know, coming late to class or being disrespectful to someone or something like that. It doesn't sound that big, but we are offending an infinite God, even by just venial sin. So offending an infinite God requires an infinite sacrifice to pay for it, an infinite, infinite reparation or propitiation. And man, modern man, does not want to admit that either. So he's got to admit that he has sin. He's got to admit that he's not big enough to pay for his sin. And he's got to admit that his sin is that offensive. And that's where he needs this sacrifice outside of himself, which is greater than himself. And as you can tell, you know, you, I'm sure you talk with people 
who don't belong to our little church here, and you'll find that it's kind of hard to find a person who says that, oh yeah, that was, that was a sin and that was serious. I better go to confession. What you usually find nowadays is something like, well, that was unfortunate what so-and-so did to such-and-such, uh, this other person, and I hope they get it all worked out. I mean, they're both good people, so um, I'm sure they'll, they'll take care of it. Uh, they love God and they pray, so I'm, I'm sure they'll work out their problem. Well, you, you never hear something like, oh, that was bad, what so-and-so did. I hope they get to confession. I hope they get back in the state of grace. We don't even hear that kind of term anymore. I hope they get back in the state of grace so that they're not offensive to God anymore. No, no, we don't hear that kind of talk anymore. That's gone now for at least 60 years. Uh, and it's our job to maintain it and bring it back when God wants to bring it back. Propitiation, that's what we mainly study. And then finally, there was the petition. Um, what we ask for must always be for the sanctification of our soul. That's what our Lord means when he says, until now you've not asked in my name. Now ask in my name. Something, will be something that will be for the sanctification of your soul. Very good. This evening's class, we'll study, we will study those who receive the fruit of the Mass. That's an interesting question. Those who receive the fruit of the Mass. Well, immediately, immediately I would think that everyone receives the fruit of the Mass. Our Lord does not exclude anyone. Um, yes, comma, but, period. Yes, comma, but, uh, dot, dot, dot. And we'll study that a little bit. But talking about the fruit of the Mass and the fruit of our Lord's redemption helping everyone, that's a good point. Uh, please distinguish in your mind something called the objective redemption of our Lord Jesus Christ and the subjective redemption of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is correct to say that everyone has been redeemed by our Lord. All of you here have been redeemed by our Lord. All of the people that um, know about Catholics but don't become a Catholic are redeemed by our Lord. All of the people that have never met a Catholic and maybe never will meet a Catholic, and maybe they live in a kind of uh, primitive uh, circumstances, they are redeemed by our Lord. That's what's called the objective redemption of our Lord. There is a great price on the head of all of us that says, capable of receiving heaven, eligible for heaven, ever since our Lord died on the cross. And the devil knows about that, and he's furious, because in many cases, eligible for receiving heaven turns into qualified and will be receiving heaven. And the devil is furious about that, and he will fight, and he's fighting an all-out war against our Lord ever since he allowed our Lord to be put to death on the cross, which caused that redemption for all men. Now, here's the important distinction. Just because we all wear a sign that says eligible for heaven does not mean we have gained heaven. And that's where the subjective redemption comes into it. It means our Lord has paid the price. We have a great value upon us now, but we have to 
um, have to kind of turn on the water from the faucet in order to drink it. You know, all that water is in there, reserved, because of the redemption. But now we have to get to that water and we have to drink it. We have to drink from the sacrifice of our Lord and, and drink from the grace of our Lord for that water to um, refresh us and convert our life. That's subjective redemption. And all of us need it in order to get to heaven. When you... Um, receive baptism, you start to drink from that water. Confession, communion, confirmation, the other sacraments, assisted mass, holy deeds, holy sacrifices, all of that is the, the power, the grace of our Lord entering your soul. And you're, you are living in the redemption of our Lord. You are um, cashing in on, you are um, activating you are realizing all the fruits and the merits of the sacrifice on Calvary in your own soul. And the objective redemption is becoming the subjective redemption for you, and it's gaining you heaven. This is a very important point because it, um, it divides or distinguishes the way Catholics have always observed the Mass. And something that crept in, in Vatican II, actually after Vatican II, when they made the new Mass and they gave out the translations in the various languages. In the original Latin, even of the new Mass, the same formula, let's see, not completely, not all the words, but essential words were still kept in the uh, consecration of the chalice at Mass. It said, uh, provobis, a promultis. This sacrifice is for you and for many um, unto the remission of sins. Even in the New Mass, it said that in Latin. But when the translations came out, uh, all of a sudden, that consecration formula said that this sacrifice is for you and for all unto the remission of sins. Uh, and that is not what our Divine Lord said at the Last Supper. So someone started telling a lie, and a significant doctrinal lie. Because by that way of consecrating the chalice, they're saying, just by the redemption of our Lord on the cross, all are saved. Uh, and that is not true. By that sacrifice of our Lord on the cross, all are redeemed, but they have not entered into that redemption. They're still standing outside the house next to the water, faucet or water spigot saying uh, let's have water but I'm not going to turn on the faucet <laughs> uh, and that's a, a significant doctrinal difference which they've let slide by thanks to Pope Benedict XVI he insists that you get that translation made correctly and hopefully a significant amount of priests are obeying that order of Pope Benedict XVI but I can think of many cases in which they did not obey him and uh uh, so there's still that doctrinal error going around. It's for you and for many unto the redemption, the remission of sins, and um, that means get, you must, you must um, integrate yourself into the redemption of our Lord. Don't just stand outside of it and say, we're redeemed, therefore I'm saved. It should be, we're redeemed, now I must live in that redemption. Very good. So adoration and thanksgiving are for God. Um, propitiation and petition are for us. 
there's a hierarchy of those who receive um, the goods in the mass, the fruits and the merits, and that is, first of all, the entire church, the entire mystical body of our Lord, in a general way, universal way, and then those assisting faithful, the faithful who are assisting at mass, and then the priest, and then finally the one for whom the mass is offered. In that order, you get to more and more particular, more and more applied is the intention of the mass. So let's talk about this. The mass is offered for the whole church. It is most abundantly for the militant church, the church militant and the church suffering. Uh, it is also, it's not for the church triumphant, the souls in heaven. They don't need the mass. Uh, their souls are already sanctified and in their beatitude. So it's for the church militant, that's us here, and the church suffering, the souls in purgatory. But it is also for the souls who should return to the church, those who have been, it and been in it and left it. They are receiving something from the mass, even if they're in the state of sin, state of mortal sin. They're receiving a grace to convert and repent and convert. The Mass is also offered for people who should enter the church. That's interesting. I said it's for the whole church. It's even for people who should enter it. Somehow they're receiving fruits and merits from the Mass. Uh, the Mass benefits and gives blessings to the entire world. Inasmuch as it will help them convert. Our Lord bought the church at huge expense to himself. Obviously, he will give the church his first attention. Uh, St. Augustine speaks about this. You know that when our Lord died on the cross, or actually when he had already died, it was the um, practice, it was the standard procedure of the executioners to see if a, so if a criminal, an executed person, was really dead by putting a spear in the heart. If only blood comes out, it means they're still living. If blood and water come out, it means that the water in their body has built up so much in their lungs that it has suffocated them and they're dead. Uh, so we know that from the side of, our, side of our Lord Jesus Christ came out blood and water. St. Augustine says the water is baptism and the blood is the Holy Eucharist. And between these two sacraments, we have all the life of grace in the church. We have baptism, which initiates us, which gives us the life of Christ for the first time in our soul. And then we have the Holy Eucharist, which constantly nourishes our soul from the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. St. Augustine says, our Lord Jesus Christ gave birth to the church when that spear was put in his side because the whole church came from his side. The baptism, which gives us the life to begin with, and the Holy Eucharist, which preserves that life until our death. And St. Augustine says, just as Eve came from the side of Adam and formed the phys physical humanity, so the church, the bride of Christ, came from the side of Christ. The, nice and slow. The bride of Christ came from the side of Christ uh, to sanctify all the souls that belong to the church.
It's magnificent when you see these um, parallels with something that happened in the Old Testament, which finds its fulfillment in the life of our Lord. And that's not just poetry. That's, that was planned by God, you know. The, our Lord bought the church at huge expense to himself. So obviously he's, he's going to give it his first attention. Um, a partic particularly large share of the fruit goes to the contributors of the Mass, such as the pastors, sorry, the contributors of the church, which would be the pastors and also the teachers of the church, the Pope, the bishops, and priests. For the faithful, the more perfectly they cooperate in the offering with virtue and piety, the more fruit do they receive. So the more you are intent on the Mass, uh, the more you are trying to make prayer during the Holy Mass, the more you're going to receive from the Mass. However, you should continue to commend yourself to all masses throughout the world every day, even though it's better to actually be present. I think I mentioned that last week. When you say your morning, morning offering in the morning, um, dear Jesus, through the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I offer thee my prayers, works, joys, and sufferings of this day for all the intentions of thy sacred heart, in union with, the, with all the masses throughout the world, this holy sacrifice of the mass throughout the world, in reparation for my sins, etc., etc. When you make that prayer in the morning, remember that you are receiving the fruits of the Mass just by saying, I offer my life in union with the intentions of all the Masses throughout the world. Nevertheless, it's still better to be actually physically, physically present at the Mass. After the whole church and those who are actually present at Mass, the personal fruit goes to the celebrant, the priest offering the Mass. He is the real offerer of the Mass and expressly offers the sacrifice for himself. He's actually offering for the intention asked, but he's gaining sanctity by offering the Holy Mass. Just by offering the Mass, he automatically receives the fruit. He must be in the state of grace, and he must offer the Mass with attention and devotion to receive exclusive graces, but actually no special intention is required. The priest doesn't have to go to the, the altar and say, um, now, I'm, um, I especially want help with um, being a more prayerful person, and that's what I'm going to be. That's why I offer this Mass for myself, besides the person who the mass, mass is actually intended for. No, the priest doesn't, doesn't even have to think something like that, and it's already helping him. It's automatic. And finally, the priest chooses to whom the propitiatory and, uh, and impetratory, the propitiatory fruit and also the fruit of petition, should be applied. Usually this is the intention written on the mass request envelope. So there's a good uh, nuts and bolts uh, explanation. That person that you ask for the mass to be offered for receives the major amount of fruit from the mass as we said, sort of whittles down in a funnel to that person. Uh, good. For whom may the sacrifice of the Mass be offered for? That's, intention. That's interesting. For whom may 
we offer the sacrifice of the Mass. Here we are. This is not a priority thing. This is just this one, yes, this one, no. This one, yes, this one, no. So, Mass may be offered for the members of the Church in the state of grace. They receive a fullness of fruits. No problem there. Mass may be offered for the members of the Church not in the state of grace. We already covered that. Uh, it helps them convert and make a good confession and come back to make a good confession and come back to the practice of the Catholic faith. For members of the church not in the state of grace, not all the fruits of the sacrifice can be applied to them, but some of them, yes. It has the effect of obtaining the mercy and reconciliation of God. Little uh, parentheses here. Be careful of the word reconciliation. You might hear that in the Novus Ordo. They don't want to say the sacrament of confession or go to confession. They'll say, we're going to have the, um, what's the word that you not apostolate. I don't know. We're going to have the function of uh, reconciliation. They might say, we're going to have the sacrament of reconciliation now. The, we're, going to have the we're going to have the ministry of reconciliation now. They like to change the words to get us away from uh, the way things always used to be. All right, what is the minister, ministry of reconciliation? Well, that's where uh, God forgives us for our sins. That's where man reconciles himself to God. Uh, be careful because that word reconciliation is kind of a two-way street. If I have a dispute with a friend of mine and we sort of part ways for a few weeks, I'll say something like, well, you know what? I really should reconcile with so-and-so and him with me. We're both going to come together. We're going to make our apologies. and We'll be friends again. We're going to reconcile. Now, how is it that I'm going to go to God and be reconciled thinking that way? You know, I'm going to see God in the sacrament, and I'm going to say I'm sorry, and he's going to say, well, I shouldn't have been so mean, <laughs> and we're going to reconcile. <laughs> you know, it's sort of the theme of a lot of modern-day cartoons, you know. Uh, the dad at the end saying, well, you know, I guess I was a jerk. <laughs> and the son says he's sorry, and everyone's good friends after that. Well, God is not going to do that with us. God God is not that. I don't even want to finish that sentence. He doesn't owe us anything. If we have a problem with him and we have sinned, it is us, it is we who owe him an apology. And hopefully he'll let us off easy with an easy penance. But uh, reconciliation, be careful. It's kind of a two-way street, that word. Uh, better to say confession and um, um, a penance. The Mass is also for people outside the church. It can be, it, let's see, for people outside the church, this is important, Mass is celebrated for their conversion. Uh, if you would like to pray for a, a pagan, that's perfect, that's fine, and hopefully he'll convert. Um, we, on our side, we're probably not going to be announcing that. The Mass is offered for so-and-so, and you think, well, that's kind of a famous pagan. I'm not going to pray for him. I'm not going to pray for him. So sometimes, usually, the priest is not going to announce something like that. What if this person who we're praying for their conversion, this person dies, and uh, I still want to have the Mass offered for him, maybe amongst other intentions, but I want to have the Mass offered for him. Uh, this question is kind of disputed amongst theologians, but the one that seems to convince me the most is continue praying for that person. Uh, 
I have the example of uh, St. John Vianney, who, uh, you maybe heard this story, uh, a woman went running to St. John Vianney saying, uh, Curie, Curie, help me. My husband, who is a drunk, has just committed suicide. And she was all out of sorts. I think women would be sad if their husband died, even if he was a drunk. Uh, maybe not completely sad, but kind of sad. Uh, and uh, so he said to her, because he had special knowledge of a lot of things, he said, I know. I was in communication with that soul, and I know that your husband repented between jumping off the bridge and hitting the water down below, uh, or whatever he jumped into. Maybe he jumped into a canyon. I never quite figured that one out either, why people jump off of bridges into rivers to die, because <laughs> sometimes it doesn't kill them. But uh, uh, this one did die. And uh, St. John Vianney said, Saint John Vianney said that uh, he had... Uh, dispositions of repentance as he was going down to the water. So you never really know if a person died unrepentant or not. And then you get into another area, which is prayer belongs to the eternal world. That word eternal, and it means ex, ex tempore or ex terminus, eternal. It means outside of time. So here I am praying in the 21st century, and my prayers might actually be valuable for someone that lived several hundred years before me because prayer is outside of time. And uh, just taking that principle, well, let's go the other way too. Someone who died 500 years before me offered up prayers and sacrifices, which are helping me now. And prayer is outside of time, and the Mass is outside of time. You step into eternity when you assist at Mass. So um, a pagan who dies, and I continue to celebrate a Mass for him, I'm not going to announce it. And be careful not to idealize or praise people who have passed on uh, without giving any signs of converting to the true faith. But given that principle of prayers outside of time, uh, what I celebrate for them now can be of use to them 10 years ago. Sounds un unusual, but there it is. So there's nothing wrong with praying for someone 10 years ago, <laughs> even though I'm doing it right now. There it is. Uh, we, can the Mass be offered for departed Catholics, Catholics who passed on to the next life, the souls in purgatory? The answer is yes, by the Council of Trent. In most, he says, Council Trent says, the Mass most especially procures help and relief for the faithful departed. It helps them more than prayers and indulgences. The Holy Mass does. Uh, in what way? It reduces their time in purgatory. It doesn't make them into more virtuous people. They're already, um, they're already sanctified. They're already... Um, welcomed into, let's say they're already saved. Here we are. They're already saved. They're not going to get holier. They're not going to get wicked. Uh, so the Mass is not going to help them in that change of the level of virtue. But it is going to help them in, insofar as it takes away their time in purgatory. You might have heard of a certain practice called a privileged altar. I remember years ago I saw one, but it was a wooden altar, which means it had been moved. It had been moved from one place to another. 
And just by its being moved from one place to another means it would have lost that honor of being a privileged altar. It normally should be an altar of stone. Well, what is a, plenary, what is a privileged altar? It means that uh, whenever Mass is offered for a soul in purgatory at that altar, uh, that person is removed from purgatory. It adds a plenary indulgence to the intention of that person. This is a privilege which is given by the bishop to some altars in his diocese. He can't give it to all the altars, then it would not be a privilege anymore, privy, uh, private, um, you know, reduced. Uh, but he's allowed to give it to some altars in his diocese. However, it's important to know that even that is subject to the merciful acceptance of God. God can choose whether he's going to accept that as a mass to save that soul in purgatory, or he's going to say, still not enough prayers offered for that person. Nevertheless, it is certain that only, the only effect they can receive from the Mass is that their time in purgatory is shortened. That's, that's always certain. Um, uh, going back to um, the plenary indulgence, and it still depends on the mercy of God, etc. You probably know already uh, what are the con uh, conditions for receiving a plenary indulgence. A plenary indulgence which removes all of the temporal guilt uh, attached to our sins. You know, the priest says uh, the absolution over us and the sin is forgiven, be it venial sin or be it mortal sin, is forgiven. But we remain, we remain with uh, temporal guilt, which we try to pay for in this life. If not, we'll pay for it in the next life. The conditions, you can get, sorry, you can get a partial indulgence, 300 days taken away from your time in purgatory or uh, 50 years, something like that, and that's another question, too. That's really not 300 days or 50 years. It means that amount of time in what used to be the canonical penances of the church. That's another topic. Better to cover that, cover that some other night. But the plenary indulgence is what takes away all the temporal guilt connected to our sins. And what are the conditions? You must go to confession within a week of gaining that indulgence. You must go to Mass and receive Holy Communion within a week of gaining that indulgence. You must pray for the Pope, uh, which is usually Our Father, Hail Mary, and Glory Be. You must pray for the Pope, and here's the biggie, you must not have any connection to sin. Oh. <laughs> well, if I get up late tomorrow morning and want to sleep in just two minutes longer, that might be a venial sin. There goes my connection. There's a, there goes my not being connected to, venial, to sin, you see. So that's, that's where you get into this idea of uh, whether it's in, whether God has accepted what we have done to get the plenary indulgence. It depends. On, it's, God has the last uh, word on whether we've gained the plenary indulgence because he will decide whether we are or, not, or are not attached to venial sin or any sin in any way. So that was a question of whether we should offer Holy Mass for the souls of the departed? And the answer is yes. Next question is, should we offer Mass for the reprobate, for souls in hell? Uh, this is very easy to answer. No, do not offer Holy Mass for souls in hell. Uh, how can it help them? They're there forever. That's not going to help them at all. Then you get to the next question, uh, who's in hell? 
<laughs> we don't really know that one. Uh, I, the best I learned from theology in seminary is that we're sure of two people being in hell. They are Cain, the son of Adam that killed his brother Abel, and left, he was left with a mark on his forehead for the rest of his life. And the other one is Martin Luther. He's in hell. So between Cain and Martin Luther, we have 5,700 5, 5, 5, years uh, that, that elapse, and we're only sure of those two being in hell. But our Lord says the way to hell is wide and easy, and many there are that find it as compared to the road to heaven. It is narrow and difficult, and few there are that find that. So we know from our Lord's own words that proportionally hell is much more full than heaven even though the apocalypse says that heaven is filled with an innumerable number of saints. So just to give you hope, you know, innumerable number of saints. Unbaptized children, children who don't, do not have the use of reason, should we offer a holy, ma <laughs> holy mass for them? This is always a toughie. And the answer is no. You cannot offer the mass for unbaptized children. Why? Because they are excluded from the supernatural goods which are applied through the sacrifice of the Mass. Uh, how about that for a black and white solid answer? You should not, you cannot offer the Holy Mass for unbaptized children because they are excluded from the supernatural goods which are applied through the sacrifice of the Mass. Okay, why? Why are they excluded from the supernatural goods? The answer is the blood that our Lord Jesus Christ shed on the cross uh, has not flown over their bodies and their souls to wash them from original sin. There it is. The sacrament is um, a visible sign of an invisible grace. When the priest pours water over a baby or even an adult in baptism, what you see going on on the outside, which is the washing of a body, is what is really going on on the inside to that soul. So when the priest is washing that body, the soul is being washed, is being washed by the power of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. No other water would wash that. That water has a special power. With those words, that water has a special power to clean a soul only because of the death of our Lord on the cross. If I were to say that, well, come on, the child's innocent, the child died, um, he didn't know any better. Uh, the answer is, we're born to an enslaved race. It is the race of fallen man because of Adam and Eve. If the merits, the fruits and the merits of the sacrifice of our Lord on Calvary are not physically given to the soul in baptism, that soul remains outside of that redemption, like I said before, objective redemption without subjective redemption, that soul remains outside of that redemption and remains unwashed. Now, the part about, well, that child is not responsible for that, responsible for that original sin which it has. Why can we put the blame on it? And the answer is, I'm not putting the blame on it. I'm just saying that it belongs to the fallen race of Adam and Eve. But you're right, since that child is not guilty, he does not go to a place of suffering. He goes to a place of natural happiness, which doctors of the church, 
fathers of the church have called limbo, the place in between. It's not heaven, it's not hell, it's not earth, it's limbo. And there they will have natural happiness for all eternity. They didn't do anything wrong, so they won't suffer. But they will not be able to see our Lord Jesus Christ, which is what we're made for, to see our Lord Jesus Christ. But without that blood of our Lord being applied to our soul, we can't, without, without that blood of our Lord being washing our soul, we cannot see him for all eternity. And then, um, should we offer Mass for the Church triumphant? I already, I already answered that, but here's a little longer explanation. The Church triumphant, or the saints in heaven, the Mass cannot be offered for them. They are already in the possession of all the riches of the Lord. Their essential glory cannot be increased. The Mass is a greater praise to God than they themselves could offer. That's interesting. This is not a reason why we should not offer Mass for them, but the Mass is a greater praise to God than even they themselves could offer. I mean, you have some great people in heaven. Yeah, I'm not talking this... Uh, I won't talk about our Blessed Mother. That's just another topic altogether. But, you know... David, the very symbol of our Lord, is in heaven. In heaven, Saint Joseph is in heaven. Um, Saint Paul is in heaven. Saint Peter's in heaven. Nevertheless, the Mass is a greater praise to God than even they could give to God. And we get to witness that right here on Earth. The, the sanctuary is all full of angels. Angels are higher than men. But when a man offers the Holy Mass. That is our Lord giving a sacrifice to his Father. And that just puts, well, obviously our Lord is above angels, but it puts man above angels insofar as he's attending, assisting at the Holy Mass. You know, our Lord became a human being. He didn't become an angel. Uh, it's, uh, our Lady is the Queen of Angels because she had the Word, the Incarnate Word within her. And she offered the Incarnate Word at the cross, she's above angels because of our Lord Jesus Christ and because of the sacrifice of the Mass. Uh, nevertheless, uh, talking about the triumphant, their graces and virtues give us matter worthily to praise and honor God, which is great. And this evening's Mass was in honor of St. Anthony Mary Claret. I think there must be at least 200 Masses in the year of 365 days that Masses are offered for this saint, that saint, this saint, or the other saint. Uh, their mass, their their lives, give us matter to worthily praise and honor God. That's why we have the mass and honor of this saint, mass and honor of that saint. They are a step towards offering a very um, um, praiseworthy mass. By the veneration of saints, the most blessed Trinity is glorified. The, their merits have come through the holy sacrifice. You see that they became holy because of the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And that's why now their lives give such great glory to God. So we remember them. We offer the Mass in honor of them uh, when we give great glory to God through the Holy Mass. Very good. So those are the ones that we can offer Mass for. And that was followed by um, who receive the fruit of the Mass. Uh, next week, we'll continue with um, the Eucharistic sacrifice in the organization of the church.